today we come to the end of our short series looking at lines from the Lord's Prayer, where we've been able to reflect on the depth of Jesus' words as they apply to our lives and our relationship with the Father. So we come to verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Well, when I read that line in the Lord's Prayer, I can't help but recall that famous quote from Oscar Wilde that said, I can resist everything apart from temptation. Well, I doubt Wilde had the Lord's Prayer in mind when he said those words, but he does highlight the truth that temptation is, well, tempting. The quote shows that Wilde understands our vulnerability to temptation. Of course, Jesus knows the fallibility of the sinful heart better than anyone, which is surely why he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And the difficulty is that temptation can take so many different forms. And what may be a temptation to you is not necessarily a temptation to me, and vice versa. Well, last week, Stephen reminded us of Jesus' teaching in the passage that we now know as the Sermon on the Mount, and how sin and the need for forgiveness is far broader than the pharisaical interpretation. Sin is not only an action, but it's our heart's desires. And so it is with temptation. Ultimately, we are tempted because the temptation offers us something we find attractive, more attractive even than Jesus. Of course, the serpent's lie since the Garden of Eden has been that there are things better than God, things we deserve that God is stopping us from getting. We succumb to this lie that we can find meaning and wholeness outside of Jesus time and time again. But if our heart's full desire is on Jesus, then things we become tempted by become less tempting. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, Jesus is firstly teaching us to understand we are vulnerable to temptation. Do you consider yourself vulnerable to temptation? An alcoholic is tempted by the next drink, a gambler by the next steak, and when they admit their addiction, they begin to understand their vulnerability. The reality is that we are all sinful and so all share vulnerability. Sometimes the temptation is very obvious, something we know and we can identify, but sometimes the temptation is much more subtle. In the 1930s, T.S. Eliot was asked to write a play for the Canterbury Festival and the result was Murder in the Cathedral. It dramatises the murder of the 12th century uh, Archbishop Thomas Becket, killed by barons loyal to King Henry II. Beckett's is a story famous for the martyrdom. However, Eliot doesn't focus on Beckett's moral stand against the king or the action around the murder, but rather the fictionalised account of different temptations as they appear as tempters in Beckett's final hours. The first tempter offers a prospect of physical safety. The second offers riches and fame. The third tempter suggests Beckett can attain power by making coalitions. Finally, a fourth tempter urges him to seek martyrdom as a way of being venerated after death. Like all good art, the play exposes the subtleties and dark corners of our own struggles and temptations. We may not be archbishops struggling with kings, but the themes in the play are probably very real to us. I wonder what you would do or give up for safety in the middle of a pandemic. When the economy and work seems insecure during lockdown, what am I willing to do to keep my job? Well, some of you know that I lead a children's charity called Spurgeon's, and most days I think about money and the charity's income. And if I'm not worrying about money, I'm thinking about all the things that could go wrong that may have catastrophic consequences on people's lives. 
The temptation in these circumstances are many. Would a partnership with another organisation make us stronger, more well-known or more successful? Should we shy away from working with the vulnerable because of the risks involved, because the work is messy, complicated and costly? Do I spend time chasing money, not need? Would compromising our Christian identity as a charity help raise more money from funders? These are all temptations luring Spurgeons away from its mission. And what about me? Well, my temptation can come from something as simple as my pay. Each year, the Spurgeons board sets my pay. And at this time of year, I meet with, meet with a small group of trustees to discuss what I've achieved so that they can determine whether I should get a pay rise or not. Now, it's lovely to think that what I can do with the extra pay or how the extra pay can say something about my status amongst my peers, about the strength of my charity. But actually, that's not my temptation. Now, you might find this strange, but my temptation is that when it comes to pay, I ask the trustees not to give me a pay rise rather than to give me one. Let me explain. Like Beckett facing the fourth tempter who held out the prospect of future generations' adoration for his martyrdom, my temptation can be to seek the praise of others who congratulate me on my holiness. You'd see, I'd probably just let it slip amongst my friends and my colleagues that my magnanimous gesture that I refused a pay rise, and therefore I betray in that moment my own heart where I seek the praise of men and women before holiness before God. And of course, I know what my own heart really thinks when it comes to money, because when I look at job adverts that seem attractive, am I attracted by the job and the prospect of the good I can do, or by the line that talks about the pay? Temptations at work, at home and at church come in so many different guises. I may be aware of the vulnerability in one area, but beware, Christians, Satan may have a sneak attack planned for your blind spot. Lead us not into temptation because of our vulnerability to temptation. That thought would be a daunting and depressing one if it were not for the remarkable truth that Jesus knows what we face and what we are going through. He has faced temptation and resisted Satan's offer. Temptation came to Jesus when he was weak with hunger. Satan wasn't much, so much doing a sneak attack. He attacked Jesus after days of fasting. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of the most obvious temptation that Satan gave Jesus to turn stones into loaves. Jesus, of course, resisted using God's word to expose the whole hollowness of Satan's temptations. But there is a lesson there for us, not just to know scripture and to cling to God's word, but also to be aware of where and when we are weak to temptation. I cannot always avoid times when I know that I'm at high risk or put myself in a high risk situation, but I don't need to put myself in those situations. That is why wise and godly counsellors down the ages have told us to heed Jesus' prayer and teaching and flee from temptation. Of course, there are amazing stories of saints who, with the power of the Holy Spirit and acting in Jesus' name, have been able to resist at the point temptation presents itself, but far better to avoid the fight wherever possible. So I do not seek the battle with temptation. No, I avoid it wherever I can. That's not because I'm a coward or doubt God's power, but because I am wise to my own vulnerability. My inspiration has to be Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife, not David admiring Bathsheba. So we pray, Father, lead us not into temptation because we know our vulnerability to temptation. 
But we also pray those words because we know that we are also responsible for resisting temptation. Now, that may seem counterintuitive, as Jesus's words here could imply that God determines whether we are led into temptation or not. That probably has something to do with the clunkiness of the translation, but it also has something to do with our own desire to absolve ourselves from our responsibility. We know that although God can allow believers to be tested, and he can even hand us over to our own sin, he is not the source of temptation, just as he is not the one who causes us to sin. He has given us free will, responsibility for our own actions. We have responsibility for our own actions and our choices. This is the joy and the burden of being a human, the privilege and the obligation of being made in his image. So as we pray, lead us not into temptation, we must guard against shifting the blame over to God. We understand our vulnerability to temptation and we take responsibility for resisting temptation. One of the most read articles ever produced by the Harvard Business Review was written by a professor called Clayton Christensen. The article is called, How Will You Measure Your Life? And in it, Christensen poses three questions. One, how can I be sure that I'll be happy in my career? Two, how can I be sure that my relationship with my spouse and my family become an enduring source of happiness? And third, how can I be sure I'll stay out of jail? The last one seems a ridiculous question, doesn't it? Yet Christensen explains that two out of the 32 people in his Rhodes Scholar class at the university have already spent time in jail. They did not start out wanting, expecting, or even imagining they could get into a position where that was even possible, yet two were involved in really significant and infamous cases. How did they get into that position? Well, Christian suggests that what's at work is something called the marginal cost mistake. Marginal costs are used in economics to work out the added cost of undertaking an action, and economists often encourage business people and politicians to use the marginal cost of an action against the returns to work out the benefit. Well, Christian writes this in his article. Unconsciously, we often employ the marginal cost doctrine in our own personal lives when we choose between a right and wrong. A voice in our head says, look, I know the general rule is most people shouldn't do this, but in this particular extenuating circumstance, just this once, it'll be okay. The marginal cost of doing something wrong, just this once, always seems alluringly low. It suckers you in and you don't ever look at where that path ultimately is headed and at the full cost that that choice entails. Justification for infidelity and dishonesty in all their manifestations lie in the marginal economics of just this once. Does that sound familiar? In 2005, I stood as a parliamentary candidate for a constituency in Wales near to where I grew up. Campaigning is a pretty full-on, full-time undertaking, and you learn that knocking on doors and standing in busy streets to try and meet lots of people is an integral part of the job. And of course, Sundays are a key time when people are at home or out shopping for you to meet. So I had to make a decision early on whether Sundays would be a campaigning day or not. And with the support and encouragement of a wise and godly wife, I found a good local church and made it clear to my team that Sundays were not a campaigning day. I would attend a campaign team meeting the first thing in the morning, but then go on to church and take Sunday as my Sabbath. That was a commitment I am really glad I stuck to. 
It not only helped me get spiritually fed, but it was a witness and an act of accountability to my campaign team and to the local church. When I'm at work, the small marginal cost temptations can often be hidden from view, especially now in lockdown. Who will know if I take some time out of work to do something else? Who will know if I bend a policy or do or let something slip? Just this once seems a far stronger justification when I'm alone than when I try to use it to explain my decision to somebody else. But when I was a candidate, for those few months, all my decisions were very public and known to others. It is perhaps the time in my life when my work has been most transparent for others to scrutinise against the yardstick of my faith. Sunday could have been a productive campaigning day. It could have also have said to others that my faith is a second-tier issue. It could be sidelined when it's, not in, when it's inconvenient. I have to take responsibility for resisting temptation. But that is so much easier when I have relationships with others who are seeking my holiness, and I'm in a community of accountability. Temptation is weaker when I am not alone. The campaign was a difficult one. Things were said about me that were difficult to take. And if I had not made that decision about worshipping with a local church, I really don't know if I would have had been had the strength of being able to resist the temptation of trading slurs and insults. Now, I pray that my campaign and conduct honoured Christ. I don't know if that was always the case, but I do know that if I had said, let's skip church just this once, my campaign would have quickly descended into something far more negative. Now, I cannot boast with time that I am much wiser now than I was 10 or 20 years ago, but I have learned a few things. And I know this, the world would like to judge us on what we do in those big moments, the big decisions of our lives. But I have learned that when those moments come, the decisions we make have been years in the making. Our big decisions are the product of countless small decisions over many years. You will be tempted in different ways today. Temptation that may not seem big a deal right now, because just this once it seems okay. But I promise you, each just this once erodes your holiness. The marginal cost of giving a little now means that you will find it easier to give a lot later on. Christensen concludes his article, How Will You Measure Your Life, by saying this, I have learned that it's easier to hold on to principles 100% of the time than it is to hold on to them 98% of the time. If you give in to just this once based on a marginal cost analysis, as some of my former classmates have done, you'll regret where you end up. You've got to define for yourself what you stand for and draw the line in a safe place. We understand our vulnerability to temptation. We take responsibility for resisting temptation. And finally, and much more briefly, we remember the certainty that we are not defined by temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The prayer Jesus teaches us is set as an appeal that we are making to the Father, but we also know that it is a certainty. Our future is secure. We pitch for a 100% success rate in holiness, but we know that we will fall short. I flee temptation, but I know that I cannot always outrun it. Too often I stumble and I fall. But the wonderful assurance we have is that by grace I can get up again. By grace I am lifted up again. I take responsibility for my own actions. 
When I'm tempted and when I give in to temptation, I do not blame God. It was my choice, my action and my rebellion. Yet when I give in, when temptation leads inevitably to sin, I can and must tell myself, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have a great need for Christ and I have a great Christ for my need. We pray, deliver us from the evil one both in desperation and in certainty. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Satan has been defeated. When we are tempted, his power seems great, overwhelming at times, but his race is run. Jesus is victorious, and for those who trust in him, they have been delivered from the evil one. We are children of God, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. We have been delivered from the evil one. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we pray these words, we understand our vulnerability to temptation. We take responsibility for resisting temptation. We remember the certainty that we are not defined by temptation. Thank God for that.